Hello and welcome to Monday Night Study with Adam Schindler. Grateful that you guys join me this evening for another night of going through the Bible together. Um, if you guys have not connected with me and if you don't know and watched this before, I have some friends over to my left over here on Zoom, some of my live people that I get to see their wonderful faces. And usually we have question and answer time at the end. So when you hear voices coming on your screen without me moving, that is my friends over on Zoom asking questions. So if you would like to get connected with me in these studies and be on the Zoom, you can text the word study to 1-770-746-8388. Just text study to 770-746-8388 and I will send you out text messages weekly. Also, at the end of this study, you can go to my website, adamschindler.com, click on this week's study, and then there will be full PDF notes that are available up right after the broadcast. So everything that I have on the screen, I put up there on PDF for you all this evening. So again, thank you so much for joining. And I want to get started tonight because we have a lot to cover. Tonight, I am talking through something that I call death to right and wrong. No, I am not a moral relativist, okay? Uh, right and wrong does exist. God made it, uh, and we need to know it. Um, but there are some problems with knowing right and wrong. There are some things that have gone terribly wrong in our human capability to know right and wrong, good and evil. And tonight we are at the fiery tree. Um, I don't know if you like my graphic. I like my graphic. This graphic reminds me of the Eye of Saruman, um, you know, in Lord of the Rings. But there, uh, you know, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is dangerous, right? It's something that God said would kill us. And tonight we'll be discussing that. We'll be looking at the specific passages. Uh, and there's a lot of nuance in that passage that you're probably not aware of. So we'll be taking a look at that passage um, in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And then talking a lot about um, the knowledge of good and evil tonight. So... Um, would you guys pray with me as we get started? I received prayer on the Zoom beforehand, and that was nourishing, and I just want to join us together here in prayer first. King Jesus, we thank you that you know us, that you love us, Father, and that you made right and wrong, good and evil, life and death, Father, and you made us to always live connected to life, Father. And so we ask tonight as we pursue the scripture, as we pursue understanding things that our culture in America and spreading across the globe does not want us to have conversation and dialogue about, Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you're doing and what you're saying, Father, and not just eyes to see and ears to hear the problems, but eyes to see and ears to hear the movement of Jesus, which always bring, brings expansion of the kingdom, which always brings um, healing, restoration, redemption. And the movement of Jesus also brings a winnowing and a division where life needs to be lifted up and death needs to be cut away. So, Jesus, we ask you for these things tonight as we pursue your word. Um, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, tonight, 
Whew. I'm a little nervous about this one, y'all. I don't usually get nervous. Um, look over at my Zoom friends. But I want to do a quick recap from last week. So last week we talked uh, about some important terms that are very helpful for understanding the theology as I'm laying this out. Um, I'm not laying out new theology, theology that's never been articulated before. You know, if you're a Bible teacher or a pastor and you're teaching some brand new thing that no one's ever taught before, you know, you're probably in trouble. All right? It's not a good thing that you teach something that nobody's ever heard. But... Just because people haven't heard it doesn't mean there's not a deep orthodoxy at the same token, because there is a lot about the, the scriptures that um, are true, are orthodox, have been disseminated through the generations, and, and have been obscured um, through demonic manipulation, laziness in the pulpit, and other ways. So, that's sort of my disclaimer. My attempt here is to tackle difficult topics uh, with the heart of a son of the kings um, and the heart of a warrior, because we are not going to sit by idly as believers in Jesus and just let the enemy cart away God's precious sons and daughters into ideologies and thought patterns and beliefs and political philosophies that will destroy them, their hearts, their relationships, and our country. I'm not just going to sit by and let that stuff happen. You know, how do we best do that? Well, we're all trying to figure that out, you know, and we probably aren't going to do it that great at first, because the church is not very well practiced at that. But that's some of what I'm endeavoring to do here, is to both bring the truth of the Scripture as I understand it through study and research and connection to God, and also application to the moment that we're in politically in our nation. I'm not an outspoken advocate um, for a particular party. Uh, I do think that there are party platforms that are much better than others. You read the Democratic Party platform and read the Republican Party platform and make up your own mind about what they believe. Um, But I do want to apply the scriptures to some things tonight. So that's a long disclaimer. Hmm. So, uh, all right. So I want to give you a quick recap from last week. We talked about a vulnerable connection. So these are our our definitions, and it's important that we understand this. Connection, as I defined it, is, let me use Brene Brown's and basic attachment theory, but connection is being seen, heard, and valued. It's, It's the energy that exists between people when they have that experience, when they're not being judged for who they are or what they're doing. It's a mutual seeing, hearing, and valuing. And this is what God does for us. He connects to us in the garden. Um, He made Adam and Eve to be able to see, hear, and value him. But it's mutual. So God expressed when he said it was good, it was good, it was very good. He expressed that he both saw, heard, and valued deeply what he had made. Okay, so God was connected to humanity. All right, deeply connected. But that is just the beginning, okay? The next word that we looked at was the word knowledge, all right? And this Hebrew word da'af means a perceptive skill or ability. This was the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is the way that most people understand knowledge, like it's an epistemic quandary that our government is doing some of the things that it's doing. Like, I don't understand, I don't know why that's happening, 
right? I don't have a perceptive skill or ability to understand why that's happening, all right? I lack knowledge. That's da'af, okay? I have my theories. Um, but that's knowledge. But there's another kind of knowledge, biblically, um, and this knowledge is called yada. And this is a better word for this is encounter, but it is translated as know or knowledge a lot in the scriptures. And this is when Adam knew his wife and she gave birth to Cain. Okay, that's an intimate knowing by experience. And God doesn't want to just connect to us. He wants to yada. All right, he wants to have an intimate connection um, with his people. Okay, I'm not I'm not sexualizing a connection with God that he's not trying to be physically intimate with people. There are some crazy theories that do go into that. But God does use the sexual intimacy conversation and metaphor to talk about the children of God that go and prostitute themselves out. You know, they, they, they whore themselves out with these detestable idols is a lot of the language in the Old Testament. Um, and so God is very much saying, I want to be intimately encountering living, not just knowing about, but living with my people. And when they go and do that with others, it breaks the Father's heart and a great, a great ache breaks open in the heart of the Father, which was... One of the main reasons, if not the, well, it's probably the reason that Jesus came. We talked a little bit about that. Well, then there's another component to this one is the term vulnerable. Okay, and vulnerable is about risking uncertainty and exposure. This is about nakedness, physical and, more importantly, spiritual. Okay, that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. But tonight, we, we look at the tree and we look at the moment that shame entered into humanity and they become aware of their nakedness, aware of their vulnerability. Because vulnerability outside of intimacy and connection with the one that you love is dangerous, very dangerous. Okay, so we talked a little bit about that. And then the last one here, and this is, this is why I use these words, because intimacy with God is well, I think it's the most important thing in our lives, right? Saying the sinner's prayer and believing in your heart and confessing with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord is just the beginning. You have to start. You know, a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, right? But you don't take one step into the sinner's prayer and arrive at the end, okay? The purpose of the Christian life is not to get to heaven. Heaven is coming to you, right? But the purpose of the Christian life is to live intimately connected to God, and everything that that means. So it's a nice flowery word, um, unless you've had, you know, some crummy intimate experiences and it feels gross to you, which I understand. But that's why I went through the work to try and redeem the word a little bit or flesh it out more for us that intimacy is then the experience of a sustained vulnerable connection. Okay, it's not just about going away for a weekend or going to a camp or going to a conference or having an encounter with the Holy Spirit that lays you out, um, you know, somewhere on the floor of a church or a revival meeting, which I believe in. That's happened to me. I think there's incredible value in it. But that's not just intimacy. Intimacy is a sustained abiding with a 
deep, vulnerable connection to God, to allow your heart to be touched by God, to do it in ways that are consistent. And that's all different for people. But Jesus showed us some pretty interesting things in his life and ministry. One of them was that he got up every day and went and pursued a sustained, vulnerable connection to his Father. Okay, so that's intimacy with God. All right, and um, that's the language, the phrases, the terminology here um, that, uh, that are helpful. And so when I refer, you know, write this down, make this a cheat sheet for what I'm talking about, because these are concepts that are underneath these words that are critical for our understanding. So that being the case, tonight I want to move into Genesis chapter 3, and I want to look at the actual moment when Adam and Eve encounter this serpent. Okay, and just to get started, um, I'm not going to go into a whole big, like normally I do a big historical thing on this, but I'm not going to do it tonight. I felt like I wasn't supposed to, but I want to just tell you that the idea of the serpent, like who's the serpent, is a question I get a lot. You know, who was the serpent, right? We want to get our cast of characters right. Was it Satan? Was it the devil? Um, Was it a fallen angel? Was it, you know, some other thing? Um, Well, the scriptures don't call, the Old Testament scriptures just call this creature the serpent, okay? Um, They don't call, the Old Testament scriptures don't call it Satan. However, Paul, in Romans chapter 9, makes a very clear um, uh, allusion, if you can call an allusion clear. Uh, In Romans chapter 9, he talks about um, that, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 16, verse 20, get my notes. Romans 16, Paul talks about um, the, the woman crushing the head of the serpent and connects it to Satan. Now, he doesn't say the serpent in the garden, but he's using the Genesis language there of crushing the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So that's where we get the idea biblically from an orthodoxy um, that uh, that the serpent in Genesis was actually Satan, Satan, uh, from, um, from uh, Romans 16. Also, another spot, Revelation 12, verses 9 and 15, talk about the serpent um, and the crushing of the head of the serpent. Uh, and then also in um, 20, verse 2, Revelation 20, verse 2. So I think that it's interesting that the whole discussion, was the serpent Satan? Was it something else? Did God create Satan? Um, like that whole discussion and conversation is a very interesting one. I just bring it up to let you know that that's not what I'm going to talk about um, tonight because we have a lot to cover, and I want to focus in on this other component to it. Um, let's just say for now that the, the, the writer of Genesis was, I think it's pretty safe to say the writer of Genesis was not referencing Satan, um, but just like the writer of Isaiah didn't know he was writing about Jesus the Messiah, what they knew by faith, we now know by name. I do think that it's pretty safe to say that the serpent in the garden was Satan. Um, and I operate from that New Testament assumption that when Paul makes those connections and John with his apocalypsis, apocalyptic uh, revelations makes those connections, I do think that that's probably what was going on. So I'm operating from that uh, per, uh, belief tonight. 
That was a long disclaimer. Hopefully tonight's not just a bunch of disclaimers. I don't know if you guys are interested or care whether it was Satan or not Satan, but I will operate from the perspective that this is a spiritual, um, this is a spirit. And I think that what we're going to talk about tonight is encountering the ancient spirits that seek to divide, separate, kill, and destroy humanity. Okay, And that's the framework for which I operate under this. And there's plenty of experiential data to back that up. So, the serpent. Um, I believe it was Satan. And, but, in order to understand what this little fellow was doing, we need to unpack this. So, let's take a look at this. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Um, that little acronym up top, DTR and W. That's Death to Right and Wrong. I started working on a book called Death to Right and Wrong about seven years ago, and then I got all involved in Trump's first campaign and, you know, left it alone. But if you guys are connected to me on um, text message and you'd like maybe a little PDF copy of a couple of the chapters, I'd be happy to share. So text me and let me know. But tonight, Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? All right. So, we need to point out, number one, that the serpent doesn't lie, okay? Now, the devil is a liar, right? He's the father of lies. Jesus calls him the father of lies when he's lambasting the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. You know, your father is the devil, Satan, the father of lies, you know? Um, But in this particular passage, he just asked a question, Right, And there's a lot of theories out there that talk about this, is try and make this serpent not so negative, you know, um, that the serpent was really just a questioner, you know, just somebody that, you know, wanted to question the pastor. The pastor's authoritarian power structure, insecurity, kicked him out, you know. Well, if that's really the case, that the serpent was just, you know, asking questions, um, I'm not entirely sure that that the Father, the Lord Yahweh, would have been so tough on him during the cursing portion of the consequences. We'll get to that in the coming weeks. But we do need to look at what this word crafty means, okay? And this word crafty, um, it is this Hebrew word arum, okay? And this word means Subtle, shrewd, crafty, sly, sensible, crafty, shrewd, sensible, and prudent. Um, There's some repetition in there. So, he was more crafty or shrewd than all of the other animals the Lord God had made. Okay, and so this word, um, arum, is a fascinating one, and it shows up a bunch in Proverbs. If you guys have... um, if you guys have your, uh, or if you ever done word studies on blueletterbible.org, I highly encourage you to do that. And this is a word study worth your time to go and look at a room and to look at some of those things. But I want to give you a definition based on many of the Proverbs about a person in the Proverbs from the Scripture who is crafty, sly, 
who is a room, okay? Because this is the context of the discussion that Eve and her husband, who was with her, was having with the serpent, the crafty chaos creature that had snuck into the garden and who is now being sensible and prudent with Adam and Eve, okay? So here is, here's a definition. This is, again, based on the Proverbs. Someone who is a room conceals what they feel and what they know. They esteem knowledge and plan how to use it in in achieving their objectives. Proverbs 13, 16, 14, 8, and 18. They do not believe everything that they hear. Proverbs 14, 15. And they know how to avoid trouble and punishment. In some, they are shrewd and calculating, willing to bend and torture the limits of acceptable behavior, but not to cross the line into illegalities. They may be unpleasant and purposefully misleading in speech, but they're not out-and-out liars. This is from Joshua 9, 4 and 1, and Samuel 23, 22. They know how to read people in situations and how to turn their readings to advantage. A keen wit and rapier tongue are their tools. All right, so I didn't write that. I got that from a book, and I realized I should have sourced that for you. I didn't write that part. Um, But think about that definition. You know, they know how to read people in situations. They're unpleasant and misleading. They're not all and out liars. You know, this whole definition sounded like a politician until it got to that phrase. They're not all and out, out and out liars, right? But knowing how to read people in situations, turning things to their advantage. You know, I'm going to go back here and look at this. They conceal what they feel. Their highest value is knowledge, okay? And they don't believe everything, but they're shrewd and they're calculating, and they bend the limits of acceptable behavior. Okay, so this to me sounds a lot like a political spirit. You know, and some of the other, when I say political spirit, I do think there's actual demonic spirits. It's also a way to say sort of like the political flavor, like just the the animating sense about politics. Um I'm not necessarily referring to an actual demonic entity at this point, um, although I do think there are those. But the political like vibe, like the whole thing in Washington, so much about that is about knowing the right person, knowing how to use information as a weapon, knowing how to twist and hold truths, and you know, not really breaking the law, but kind of breaking the law, but not really crossing into totally breaking the law, but definitely breaking social social norms, right? And so this was the, we're going to come back to this spirit because it's one of the things that is animating what I believe is woke, um, wokeism, for lack of a better word, in America. It is this a room. This is a crafty, subtle, twisting, taking things that aren't total lies and packaging them and putting them together in such a way that it just twists people all up. We're going to be talking more about that. So this is the context of the discussion that Eve is having. And, you know, I don't know if this is accurate, but this is sort of how the story in my head plays out. You know, here is this this nice 
naive, sweet Eve. You know, she's never had a bad day in her life. She's got this muscular, naked husband that's with her all the time. You know, they know all the animals, and they're walking with God. And here's this precious, naive girl who... You know, is prancing around. Maybe that's not how it was. But then she encounters this slick, fast-talking, subtle, shrewd, somebody that has more information about the world and the darkness that's there than she does. Okay? And in films, in, in you know, I'm trying to think of a specific one here, but, you know, the, the naive, unbroken-in un, um, woman is not seen as a heroine. Right, Billy Joel does a, a song about this. Right, only the good die young. Um, about Catholic girls who, you know, grow up much too late. You know, they're naive and they don't know. The whole thing is about that. Um, and our culture doesn't value purity the way that God values purity. Our culture values the serpent, the crafty one, the one that's got the street smarts, the one that has the knowledge and the wisdom, the one that can take advantage of the foolish, quote-unquote, naive girl that doesn't know how the world works, right? You got to grow up, you know, figure it out, get street smart, stop believing all the junk your parents taught you and just being a little sweet little southern girl, grow up and get a, get a life, sort of this idea, you know, and I don't know if that's just a, a too much of a reduction of a character character of a person, but I definitely know our culture doesn't value purity like God does and doesn't value a pure heart that was connected to the Word of God, not to all of this seductive knowledge. Okay, but Eve is there, and Adam is there. Um, and I think that it's interesting that this temptation comes specifically to the woman. Um, because purity and vulnerability are, are, well, they're big parts to this puzzle. So let's go on. Let's go back to Genesis 1, and let's read the rest of this here. So the serpent was crafty. It was more crafty than the beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Okay, so God made this. All right. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, and so Eve replies and responds to this assault. Okay, and and it's here that that we need to sort of we're going to do a lot of unpacking tonight and trying to look about, um, I'm setting this in a, in, a, in a conversational experience, that there was this conversation that was being had with a talking snake, okay? Um, you know, I heard it said that being a one-trick pony is not, you know, it's not good to be a one-trick pony unless your one trick is a talking horse, then that's a pretty good one-trick pony. Um, but a talking serpent, right? Uh, let's not get sidetracked on the fact that the serpent was talking and the meaning's there. There may be some, but we need to understand that there is a cunning chaos creature who is wily and crafty, who is having a conversation with a young woman who is in, not in the negative sense, naive, right? She doesn't have the street smarts 
quote unquote, that the serpent does. She doesn't even have the street smarts that God has, right? She's operating with a limit to her knowledge because God set up a tree. I'm jumping ahead of myself, okay? So when, when this conniving serpent speaks out to this innocent, pure woman, he speaks to her. And remember, Eve is functioning as God designed and intended in the middle of this garden with the tree to make a choice that would kill you as God intended it to do so that we can have a choice. So this is a clash of the fundamental moment in human freedom where we have the choice between two things. Stay connected to God or get connected to these temptations. So that's the context of what we're looking at. And she replies, verse 3, You will not eat of the... God did say, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Okay? So she replies, right? And it's a good reply. But is it exactly what God said? Let's take a look at this. This is what God said. Chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so there's some differences between the way that Eve replies and the way that God spoke. And I used to make this point pretty strong, and it's not as strong for me anymore just because I understand the reality of of how difficult chronology is um, to rightly position inside of this particular passage, the ancient scriptures. Uh, But it does seem from, from the scriptural order and the days of creation, it does seem that uh, Eve is created after, you know, the placing of the tree in the, in, in the middle of the garden. Uh, and some people have made some comments and extrapolated some of this, is that God told Adam not to eat from the tree, and then Adam didn't do a great job relaying the information to Eve. I don't know. That's anecdotal. I certainly know that husbands from time to time have a difficult time accurately communicating with their wives. Um, I don't want to read too much into the Bible here, but I know that's true Um, for other men, not me. But it is worth looking at here the comparison between what Eve said and what God said. All right, so this is what God says. All right. He says in Genesis 2, 16 through 7. Oh, that's kind of bright. I wish that. Oh, I'll fix that. Sorry, y'all. You just have to trust me here. It's too, too blue on my screen. It looked good until I streamed it online. God's version. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Squint your eyes and you can see it. Um, Now, this is what Eve says back. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the garden, in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, so there's two things I want to point out here. Um, Put your neon glasses on. That one, Eve adds a prohibition that doesn't appear in God's version. 
she adds a different prohibition. And it's a rational one, right? What's the prohibition? You can't touch it. You can't even touch it. God said, don't eat of it. Eve was like, mm-mm. You know, and I know this, having a, having a wife and a mother in my house. It's like, well, if this is the boundary, then we're going to back that boundary up about 16 steps, and we're making that the boundary, right? You can't eat it, and you can't even touch it. You know, and that seems like a good mother kind of a thing to do. You know, <laughs> here's God's boundary. Your boundary is back here, okay? Don't even get close to the tree. You can't even touch the tree, okay? I find that interesting, Um that certainly has been my experience. Um, I'm more of a risk taker. I like to know where the boundary is, and then I like to dip my toes. I like to hang my toes off the boundary, and I like to kind of look down and maybe tie a nice rope to a tree and kind of rappel down the boundary a little ways. Um, you know, I, I like boundaries because it's, a, it's an opportunity to break something. My wife is very different. You know, she loves the boundaries and she sets up boundaries in front of the boundaries so that you don't get to the boundary without passing through a set of boundaries. Um, and that's a very helpful thing for me in my life and our new puppy and our children. Um, and so I see Eve doing some of this, right? Don't just eat, but don't touch. Also. But that's not exactly what God said, okay? And... But there's one thing here that I want to play on and, and, and lay out for this, because um, I think it's the key to understanding the open door for temptation for Eve. Because God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That word, in the day that you eat of it, in the day is this Hebrew idiom that, that means essentially at some point in the future, there's coming a point that you will die in the day. It's, it's, a, it's an imperfect look forward. It's an action that isn't completed. Okay, and so when God says, when you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's coming a point when you do that that you will die. It wasn't necessarily, necessarily, it may be, but the Hebrew phrase there gives this sense that God is saying, in a coming period of time after you do this, there will be death. Okay? Now, that isn't the way that Eve interprets it. She doesn't say, on the day that you eat of it, you will die. She makes this imperative, and it is, it is an imperative statement. If you eat of it or even touch it, you die right? You die, like right now. The moment you touch this, you're dead, okay? Don't do that. It's a strong no, you're going to die. But that's not exactly what God said, okay? And this opens up Eve to an attack. And this is where the wily little serpent politician uh, begins to <laughs> exploit so the serpent says to the woman, this is Genesis 3, 4, and 5. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Okay, so he says what God says. But he says what God says, not what Eve says, because she left that part out. He's saying, in the future, remember, in the future, you will not surely die in the future. Okay, it's a difference between the moment that you're in now 
and the moment that could come if you continued down a path. Okay? Now here's, you know, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence tonight in conversations because I think it's applicable in my own personal life about my wife and my marriage and relationship. Um, and I think, you know, it helps me in my, in my moments. I'm like, well, this is, every man has these problems. You know, that's not unique to me. Um, but the, uh, I totally forgot my point saying that. What was my point? Um, oh, there it is. Thank you. Um, the idea that, I really, I look at what's around me. I, I basically don't pay attention to what's around me right now. I'm a forward thinker. I'm a strategist. I'm looking ahead. I'm dreaming about what's coming. I'm hearing things from the Lord about things that are coming. And by the time they happen, I've already moved on to other things. Um, it's happened for decades with me and organizations. And it's, it's what makes me a good digital marketing messaging strategist is I can see things coming. Um, where others can't. That's my gift. My wife can't think strategically, doesn't want to think strategically. She is so focused right now in the moment, okay? And she's very, very gifted at that. And so she helps guard and cover me because she's thinking about the threats that are in front of us right now. And I'm not even paying attention to right now because the right now that I'm in, I was in two years ago. Um, The problem with being a future person is that you're always thinking about the future. And when the future you thought about becomes the now, you're already past the now. And so you're never living in the moment. Um, And I have problems with that. But what does that have to do with this? Well, It has everything to do with this because part of the open door was God's prohibition that if you do something now, there will be a future consequence. And the devil, the serpent, begins to challenge the future consequence for an immediate gratification. Don't think about what's going to happen in the future. Think about right now. And Eve is very focused on right now. God said we can't touch it. We can't even touch it because we'll die now. And the serpent says, well, did God, you won't die in the future. You won't surely die, you know. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay? Let me just back up here. I realized that I was making a mistake in my language here, and I want to correct it. I don't like making mistakes, but I made a mistake. I was thinking about surely die, that, that the serpent was talking about on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. I was equating the, the phrase surely die and on the day that you eat of it. Does that make sense? Um, the serpent was not challenging the future death. He was saying, this isn't going to affect you now. Okay? I know I probably just confused a lot of you with that mistake. But um, the serpent challenges Eve's fear that she'll die immediately, knowing that God had said, this is going to be a future death and disconnection. But there won't be consequences now. Eve is terrified about the now, and the serpent says, you're not going to have immediate consequences right now. Trade the future prohibition that's supposed to keep you safe for this immediate thing, okay? And then he goes on, and he says, 
why? Why will you not immediately die? Well, it's because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, so we're going to unpack this. The idea that God has knowledge, and this word, I talked about it last week, this word here is yada. For God yadas, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him, yadaing good and evil. Okay? This is not the, the, the da'af. This is not perceptual skill and ability. He's not tempting her with perceptual skills and abilities. He's not tempting her with rational knowledge, epistemic, informational increase, right? He's tempting her with an experience, not knowledge, an, an encounter. This is the temptation, okay? And the temptation here is that, this is one of them, you can become like God without being with God. You can trade your intimacy with God for information about God. Okay? We were connected to the tree of life. We could eat from every tree in the garden. We could eat. Maybe they didn't eat from the tree of life. I don't know. Um, It doesn't say that. There's theories. But we had unlimited access to life in every tree. But the temptation was to have an experience like God has that you don't have. And how do you have an experience like God? Well, you don't actually go and be with Him. You gain information, and that makes you more like Him. Right? Do you guys see the the seduction here? Right? You don't have to be with God. You can just learn about God. You don't have to go through the messy, intimate thing of being vulnerable and being exposed and having, you know, all of the things that come with intimacy, the joys of intimacy and the vulnerabilities of it. You don't need any of that. You can get that all for yourself. You can acquire it through your mind. You can acquire it through reason. You can acquire it through knowledge. Okay? And the problem is that the serpent tempted them to have the same kind of experience that God has, knowing you're dying good and evil. Okay? Was he lying about that? Does God have the yada of good and evil, experiencing good and evil? Yes. Right? He created good and evil. Right? So he told them the absolute truth. God did know that on the day that they eat of it, they would have the experience of being like God, knowing good and evil. Okay? But here's the deeper seduction. And what's latent inside of this is that the serpent was saying is that he calls God's character into question, essentially. He says that God has an experience that he's intentionally withholding from you. Right? It's not just knowledge. Right? God lives in such a way that you will never know. And he's keeping it from you on purpose because he doesn't want you to have it. Okay? God is now, and this is the twist. Satan, the serpent, tried to get Adam and Eve to see God, their father, as their enemy and their rival. 
that God had something that he was withholding on purpose. On purpose, keeping it back. Okay? And he begins to set this tension and this hook inside of them to begin to think about their good father in terms of withholding something good. And not just good knowledge, a good experience, a good encounter, a whole way of living in the world that they don't have because God is withholding it. Okay? God knows he has this yada. And why is God doing this? Well, he does it because he doesn't want you to be equal with him. Okay? This is about equality. Being like God. Right? God has a way of living in the world that you will never have. And he knows it. And he set up this whole cosmic power structure systemically from the very foundations in the garden to keep you, humanity, from knowing this secret experience that God lives in. And he is doing all of this because he doesn't want equality. He doesn't want you to be equal with him. He doesn't want you to be like him. Serpent says, God knows that you'll be like him. Okay? So, what's the serpent's solution? God has an experience he's intentionally withholding from you. He does it because he does not want you to be equal with him. Therefore, what should you do? You should break out from under his power hierarchy and gain for yourself his secret knowledge. Right? He's the cosmic overlord that has structured the universe systemically to be unjust because you, Adam and Eve, don't have something he values the most. And you need to break out from underneath that and gain for yourself this secret knowledge that God won't let you have. Okay? Is this language sounding familiar? So... What happens when we break out the temptation to break out from underneath God's power hierarchy and gain for ourselves the secret knowledge that he's withholding? What will we have? Well, this is how we get equality with God. And we become God instead of his dependent. Right? We supplant God as God and we become God which ultimately was the serpent's whole plan, right? I mean, that was Satan's deal, right? He was supposed to be the one. I mean, Isaiah talks about how his garments had bells and they jingled with music at the sound, you know, and he was the one. And he couldn't stand that God was getting the worship when he was the most beautiful worship. He hated the fact that God had systemically set up the entire universe so that he was the one that got the worship and not Satan. So what did he do? He tossed down, he rebelled, he got cast down to the earth, he took a third of the angels with him, according to Revelation and Ezekiel, Isaiah, and other places, you know, and he starts this insurrection. He starts this insurrection in the earth. And he goes to Adam and Eve and he tells them the same thing that he is violently angry with God about. That God has an experience of being worshipped that God is intentionally withholding from Satan. And God did this because he didn't want Satan to be equal with God. And this made Satan so angry. 
So he broke out from underneath the power hierarchy. He gained for himself the secret knowledge of God. He was cast out from heaven, and he thought that he made himself equal with God instead of his dependent. But guess what? That isn't what happened, right? And so now he's just remixing his same old lame, failed philosophies, trying to pass them on to humanity, right? So now I'm just going to go there because this thing, this ancient demonic temptation and assault is the same spirit that's moving in the earth. This neo-Marxist woke stuff that is moving in across our country. It is the same failed philosophical, political, demonic philosophies that sent hundreds of millions of people to their graves in the 20th century. It is the same recycled thing. And it's coming to us in the form of critical race theory, critical social justice, woke ideologies, and it's infiltrated the American church in remarkable ways. And what is, it, what is the whole concept? And i got to be careful here now not to just go on a rant. Um, because these, the idea of critical race theory and critical social justice deserves a careful, close analysis, not just conservative bomb-throwing about ideas, right? But the foundation of critical race theory and critical social justice says that there is systemic racism in the American system, America, by definition, is systemically racist because, and the evidence for systemic racism is the fact that there is an economic or political or educational or wage inequality between white Americans and African Americans. And they show that that inequality is evidence of a systemic broken system that is completely racist. And critical race theory does not require individual racists. And it's not even about the individual hearts. And this is the thing that's so difficult for um, compassionate believers to understand. That critical race theory and critical social justice doesn't require individual racists to be true. The fact that African Americans make less in some jobs than whites is proof that there's different educational systems, that there's different um, inequality of any kind as evidence of structural systemic racism. Okay, and what's the problem with all of this? Well, the white man is intentionally withholding. The whole idea of white supremacy is that the white, and these are according to um, uh, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, um, D'Angelo, um, some of the key thinkers in the critical social justice, critical race theory movement. These are their words. I could footnote all this stuff for you in another time. But the, the whole idea that there is... Um, White supremacy is white supremacist is someone who creates a power structure, and the white culture in America has created a systemic power structure to withhold advancement from other people, people of color, and people from marginalized groups. And it's been done intentionally to withhold the power, to withhold the opportunity and experiences. Okay? And the solution to that is to displace the power hierarchy, not to reform it, but to completely tear it down. Okay? 
And the idea of critical race theory is not a reforming theory. It is about revolution. It's about tearing down an old structure and replacing it with a new one. It's about equality of outcome, not equality of opportunity. Critical race theory also calls into question the whole concept of knowledge, the whole concept of Western science built on white supremacy, white knowledge power structures. It calls into the question the entire idea of meritocracy, the idea that people make a better wage because they're more skilled. There's so much going on in those ideologies. Um, and to say all of that as a white, heterosexual, native-born, native able-bodied male who sits atop of the dominant power structures, this just is evidence for many critical race theorists that, you know, I'm, I'm too fragile to actually look at the problems. I don't actually know. I'm, I'm mansplaining right now or white-splaining or whatever it is. Um, and you know what? I'm talking about all of this because I see the connection between the enemy's lie. The problem for me, the biggest problem with the, the woke politics and critical race theory is not that it displaces me at the top of a dominant hierarchy. Okay? That's not the problem. The problem is that it divides people that should be together. It separates. The eight years of Obama's presidency, we did not see an increase in race relations in America. We did not see an increase in, in measurable gains for the African-American community. Things got further divided and separated because the whole ideology of the enemy is to set people that should be in intimate relationships and connections with one another, to set them opposed to one another by thinking that there is someone that sits atop a power hierarchy that is controlling everything with their malevolent selfishness, and they're withholding experiences from other people because they are evil. This is what the serpent was saying about God. He knows Something you don't know, and he doesn't want you to have that experience. He doesn't want you to have that equality with him. And I think that this is a, I think this is a problem, you know. And I think that the solution to it is part of what we discover inside of reading the scriptures, is that the whole idea of the scriptures. We have to get out of our minds this idea that God is withholding something from us, that he's got something good, and that he's keeping us out from some good experience, and that he is this cosmic deity that pulls the strings and makes everything kind of function without regard to individual life or connection. You know, And this is what the serpent came and seduced humanity with. Okay, so hope that was fun. Um, man, I just I'm fighting the urge to qualify. You know, I'm so far out there past qualifications. You know, but I'm gonna do I'm gonna do some more studies right now. I'm reading four particular books on critical race theory and critical social justice. Um, 
to by folks that are at the sort of the, the pinnacle of opposition to it. Um, Vody Bakum and a guy, James Lindsay, and two others. Uh, D'Angelo ordered her new book that's coming in a couple of weeks, and then Ibram X. Kendi, uh, because I want to know what both sides are saying and what they're talking about. Um, so look for something maybe in the fall when I get a little more well-versed in articulating some of these things. Um, but it's an important issue, and you know I feel a tremendous amount of uh, resistance being atop of the the CRT dominant hierarchy, public enemy number one, um, being who I am by virtue of who God made me to be, to stay silent about it. Uh, but I don't want to do that. So anyway, let's continue on with our Genesis study. Um, but we do need to defeat the enemy's lies. And we defeat the enemy's lies by connecting people to God, not overpowering them with more power. Right? What's more power? <laughs> more love, more power, right? You know, we're not going to defeat the critical race theorists by writing books and having conferences. And, you know, there are things that need to happen to have a public encounter, but we need to understand that this is about connecting ourselves to God. Because this CRT, CRT thing is just another iteration of the same tired old demonic line that God has defeated time and time again, and his body will rise up and defeat it by connecting people to God. And that's why we're doing this study. We need to understand what's going on so that we can both protect ourselves, our families, and submit to the idolatrous, um, submit our idolatrous thoughts to God so he can cleanse us. All right, Genesis 3. Let's go back to the scriptures. So this is what happened. This was the temptation. Become like God without being with God. Gain for yourself knowledge. Go and displace this power-hungry God that sits atop the dominance hierarchy in the garden. Get for yourself secret knowledge. Become equal with God. Become God yourself. Temptation. Scorn the future disconnection that God said was going to happen for the momentary experience of getting for yourself that ability. Well, then it says this in Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. All right, this is, I think my mom's on the call still. So one of my favorite moments, my mom uh, was a philosophy professor for a long time, and now she's a professional counselor. And I have high regard for my mother's wisdom. She taught me a lot, but she taught intro to philosophy, PL 105 at Carl State University. And uh, I remember sitting in her class in 2000, and uh, she asked this question about Adam and Eve. You know, um, and someone tell me the story of Adam and Eve. And my friend Brandon Fuller, who sat in front of me, uh, told the story. And he, you know, he was a he was a person who was raised in a Christian home and then you know abandoned it for his philosophy. And he told the whole story, you know, um, 
did a pretty good job until he got to this end part. And he's like, and then Eve ate this apple and was deceived by the devil. And then Adam comes walking up and he's like, oh, what are you doing, woman? And she's like, here, take this apple. And I was like, oh, I heard that so many times. Um, you know, and Larry Crabb wrote a book. I think it was Larry Crabb called The Silence of Adam. What's the problem here? This is just ancillary. Uh, the problem here, in one respect, was that Adam, who was with his wife, didn't speak up. He didn't open up his mouth, right? He didn't help her, remind her of what God said. Maybe he was the only one that heard it. I don't know. But he was with her, and he didn't speak up, you know? And so, relationally, and this is, you know, this is Larry Crabb's book in two minutes. Relationally, the sin and the failure of Adam is that he stays silent. And men throughout relational history have a problem with relationships because they stay silent. They withdraw. They don't share their feelings. They don't connect their emotions, right? At the garden, at the tree, the silence of Adam was painful for Adam. But the problem with Eve, she tried to get, she was seduced by the serpent's thing. She wanted to supplant the authority in her life. She was seduced by that authority supplanting idea to become like it. And what do women struggle with in culture? What does the serpent do to the woman, right? Makes her less than. Try to put her underneath the man. Try to get this false vision of what submission is like in the Christian home that you just say yes to your male overlord. Like that's not biblical submission, Okay, biblical submission is about the Greek word for submit, wives submit to your husbands, is a Greek word that means to align for battle under your commander. Okay, so wives, align for battle under your commander and go to war as a three-corded strand of power in a covenant relationship, right? But Adam was silent, men struggle with relationships in general, Eve struggled by taking the authority away from the one who had it to get it for herself. And throughout humanity, women are being put down, oppressed in the capacity that they, you know, are not as strong as men or don't have the same measure of authority that men have. They wrestle with that in culture. I think it's an interesting level of analysis that this is something that happens here at the tree. Uh, read Larry Crabb's book for a much better articulation of that. The silence of Adam. But um, Adam was with her, right? But the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight for the eyes and to make one wise. So let's take a look at this fruit, okay? And the reasons that Eve and Adam ate the fruit, okay? One of them is they first, they saw that it was good for food, Okay, and so the context of this, I think, is helpful to remember that God, the temptation was God's withholding an experience from you. There's something that God has, not just knows, but is that you will never have unless you do this, right? You'll never be equal with God unless you supplant him and take it for yourself. And so she looks and she sees that it's good for food. Okay, and, and food is not just, you know, popcorn or, you know, putting something in your body for nutrients, right? But it is very specifically about the body being better taken care of. Um, and I think I could go on a little 
rabbit trail. I got a little bit of time. Maybe I'll bunny trail off into food here for a moment. Um, has anybody uh, watched what is that McDonald's? Um, you know the oh the fast food nation. It was like a, a decade or so ago. Just about. I mean, it's a documentary on on the fast food industry in America, where the food comes from, and the ammonia washed chicken nuggets from, um, you know, McDonald's, and you know, the whole idea of food is not just about eating something. It's about it's about caring to and tending to your body or destroying your body. You know, and there is a deep spiritual and emotional and psychological connection to food. Okay, and and it's not nothing. You know, I'm a little bit of a foodie. Um, if I had more time, I would make a lot more stuff. But I like nice food, um, and it has to do some with this other piece about food is that you have a new experience of luxury. Who likes going out to nice restaurants and having a nice meal? And you feel special, right? You're like, oh, I'm dining in this restaurant. You know, I, I think that there's a component that she sees that, that if you eat good stuff, your body gets better. You're healthier. Your quality of life is expanded. So she sees that if she gets this knowledge for herself and that Adam and Eve, if they get this knowledge for themselves without having reference to God, that their bodies will be better taken care of. They'll have good food, and they'll have an experience of luxury that they couldn't get if they didn't do this, right? The whole idea of eating out at nice restaurants and having luxurious food is to show off your status, right? That's part of this. So she sees that it's good for food. And there's another part of that deeply connected is that it's delightful to the eyes. You know, it's not just pretty, but this is about desire, Others looking at you and desiring you. You ever been in a situation where, you know, you got a lot of knowledge and, you know, you can shut, I don't know if you guys have ever had these. I used to have power dreams about using an Aristotelian categorical syllogism on one of my professors and shutting him up um, as he was talking smack about Jesus being God. You know, and I, I used to have this recurring dream, you know, and I would stand up and I'd use one of Anselm's theorems for the existence of God and I'd write it out on the board and it's this whole power dream because I knew how to use philosophy and Aristotle to make my professor look stupid, you know, and the whole thing was about the delight of my eyes, Everybody in the class looking up at me and saying, oh, that Adam, he's so smart. You know, look at him. Oh, my gosh, he made the professor look so dumb. What are you doing later? I had those dreams. Like, that, that's part of what motivated me in philosophy and why, you know, the Lord needed to deconstruct me. Uh, there was others looking at you and delighting and desiring you and closely connected to that. This is about making others jealous, envious. You know, knowledge and secret knowledge stirs up jealousy um, amongst other people. So it was good for food. It was delighting to her eyes. And she saw that it would make her wise. You know, And there's much that could be said and unpacked. I'm just scratching the surface of this here, but... But this idea that you will have the power to know right and wrong. And I want to kind of camp here, and then we'll end a little bit earlier tonight, so I don't just fire hose you with all these concepts for two hours. This is the key here. 
is that we have the power to know right and wrong. Paul, I see your phrase, intellectualism. Yes, that's part of it. That's definitely part of it. But that our ability to know right and wrong and our wisdom, not God's, will reign supreme. So this is what Eve saw. And this is what she was hoping to get. When she saw it, she, whether she actually got it right or not, we don't know. I think she probably did. But she saw these three things, and she said, I want that. I want that. I want to have my body and a new experience of luxury. I want people to be jealous and envious of me, and I want to have the power to know right and wrong. And it'll be my wisdom and not God's that will reign supreme. And Adam took the fruit and ate it. That's the end of my notes here, and so I just want to talk briefly um, about this and see what comes out, because the whole idea that we would know right and wrong, good and evil, without reference to God, is it's an important thing to try and wrap our minds and our hearts around. You know that this, this was my story and my history, and it still is. Anytime I get into relational conflict, um, it's, it's usually because I'm trying to be right at the expense of being loving. You know, and, and the serpent was saying to Adam and Eve, who were in the very nature of God, right? They were made in his image. They had unlimited access to it. And, and he said to them, Look, it's not enough to be connected to God. You have to be the arbiter of what is true and what is false, of what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. And you don't even have to be connected to God to have it. You know, and then what happened at that moment was that the weight of the reality of the fact that we now held right and wrong, good and evil on our shoulders, came crashing down upon Adam and Eve. And they realized, how are we going to adjudicate all of the different problems in the world? How do we even know what's right and what's wrong? You know, who knows what to do at the southern border? It's your job all of a sudden. You know, you're the one that's supposed to know right and wrong, and if you see the wrong, you have to make it right. you got to fix it. What do you do about the southern border in the United States? What do you do about tenured professors in America? What do you do about the growing threat of China? What do you do about the growing threat of Iran? What do you do about the Biden administration's rejection of the Israeli sovereignty? What do you do about all these things, right? It's overwhelming. Who feels overwhelmed? I do a lot, you know. I've come out of my COVID bunker um, a few weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago, I've reemerged trying to move ahead from COVID and the election and all the things that have gone on. And I've realized that I have been connected to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil this whole time. That my primary experience, my yada moment is in my head. Right? Do you guys know people or are you one yourself like me who is now stuck having your life experience be about what you know, about what you read, about what you think? Okay? That was never God's 
good, very good design for us. He never intended and still to this day does not want you to have your life experience, your daily yada encounters with the world to be mediated only through your mind. What you read and hear and think and rationalize and process through your soul that's wounded, that has pain, that has opinions, good opinions, bad opinions, political opinions. This is why God has told many of you to turn the news off. And it's not because the news is wrong and fake, which it is. Okay? It's because when you turn off the news, you turn off a stream of the knowledge of good and evil that is weighing you down and connecting you to your concepts, not to the eternal one. And it is so important in this hour, and I'm totally preaching to myself right now, that we reconnect or connect for the first time with the voice of God who walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. With the connection, not to all the news and information, but to who God is, His character, heart, and His nature, and what He's saying. Okay, and I understand how hard it is to discern what God is saying right now, but we don't need prophetic insight to understand His character, His heart, and His nature. We need prophetic insight to understand the moment, but we don't need prophetic insight to understand his heart, character, and nature. What do we need? We need the scriptures. We need each other. We need the fellowship of the believer. Right? So, if you're struggling right now in your mind, feeling oppressed, overwhelmed by all the swirling darkness that's in the world and all of the competing narratives and all of the wokeisms and the assaults and everything that you're concerned about. I'll finish that sentence in a moment because I want to tell you a story. If that's you, in 1999, I saved up my money and I, uh, I flew to... Europe for the first time as a, I don't remember how old I was. I could do the math, 20-something. And I flew to Europe to go see if I could make, make, make it in Europe. You know, this was sort of my um, bar mitzvah to myself. I didn't have, I was bemoaning the fact that men didn't have a rite of passage ceremony in American culture. And so I made my own rite of passage ceremony trip to Europe. And I got on a plane, and I flew to Chicago O'Hare, and it was like five hours. That was my first experience going to O'Hare, and I'm never going back because it's awful there. Uh, And I sat like six hours, five hours waiting for weather delays. And I got on the plane, and I was so frustrated, and I was like trying to figure out if I could even do this thing. And I get put in this big old massive jumbo jet all the way to Rome, and I'm in the middle seat sandwiched between this guy and this other lady, and I'm just frustrated, you know. And we get up in the air, and it's nighttime, and then this is when I discover, um, I discovered that, you know, I was 19, I remember that. I discovered that they would, that they would, the flight attendants would just give you little bottles of alcohol if you asked. Um, and I had never, I'd never had a bottle of alcohol on an airplane. They had these tiny little bottles of vodka, and I was like, oh. Yes, can I have one? And they didn't even ask how old I was. And then I found out you're flying and it's okay at 18. That was the story I made up to myself. But so I get, there's a point to this. So I get, 
like a little bottle of vodka. And then the guy next to me orders a bottle of vodka and some Kahlua and some chocolate milk. And I was like, oh, that sounds nice. So I get some Kahlua also. And that starts out this conversation with this guy that was sitting next to me that we made little white Russians and began to talk on the airplane to Rome. And this guy's name was Financi Anzalone. Financi Anzalone. Financi Anzalone. And that's all the Italian I know. It was the first line of a Petrarchan sonnet. Um, But Financi Anzalone begins to tell me this story, and we just start talking, right? And he tells me that he is the commanding officer of the U.S. Naval Hospital in Naples, okay? And I'm like, what are you doing to coach, <laughs> you know? And he said, well, I've been touring around the United States with the Department of Defense talking about the naval operations overseas at our hospitals. And he had like 500 people underneath him, and he said, you know, I'm flying back, and there's a UN banquet in my honor in Naples at my hospital. And because of this delay in O'Hare, I'm not going to be able to make it. And he said, you know, I can't go and tell the pilot to go faster. You know, I can't take another plane to fly down to Naples because that would be even longer than driving. He said, I can't get in my Maserati and drive 180 kilometers down the coast to get there in time. Like, I've gamed it out. There's no way that I can get to Naples in time. And he said this. He said, so I learned, you know, there's spheres of influence, things that you care about, and there's things, there's things that you can influence and things that you, can, that you care about. No, I'm not making the white supremacy sign right now. I'm just showing you an example. Um, you have to say that these days. Um, so the, uh, and it's a Venn diagram. He's like, you know, I care a lot about going to Naples, but I can't influence it at all. He said, but as you get older, you need to learn how to live in the middle of concern and influence. You get the point. It's a Venn diagram, y'all. You need to live in the center of concern and influence. Okay. If you have great concern for something, but you can't influence it, then you feel impotent and you feel frustrated, right? And you go in rage usually. But if you have great influence and no concern, then you're Congress. <laughs> That's a joke, right? You're a tyrant. Great influence, no concern, okay? That's tyranny. Great concern, no influence. That's impotency. We need to learn how to live in the center of concern and influence, Okay, why am I bringing this up right now? One of the ways that our minds get totally wrapped up in this massive ball of concern that we can't influence is that you are finding yourself primarily connected to your own ideas about the world. Okay, and if you're connected to yourself, guess what? You're probably not that important. There's an encouraging word straight from the scripture, you know? I'm not that big of a deal out in the world. What can I do about the border? You know, I built a little tool to help people engage. I did a little bit, you know, but what, what can you do about all the things that concern you, right? But it's encouraging to know if you begin to think about, all right, so I have this great yearning. Like I've got all this stuff I care about. One, If you're feeling frustrated by that, it's because probably you don't have any influence to do anything about it. 
or you're not exercising your God-given influence in prayer to do something about it. Okay, so if you have a lot of concern and you're frustrated and scared, it's because you probably don't have the influence that's needed to change anything. So there's two options at that point. Number one, learn how to pray, right? Exert your influence in the heavenlies. This is a real thing, and it's a big deal. We can expand our sphere of influence to gobble up our concerns because God has called us as believers to declare on earth as it is already in the heavens. And all we have to do is tap into the heart of the Father for His Word and His will in this moment, and we can agree with Him for that to happen on the earth. That has divine influence and power on the earth, okay? That's why I participate in World Prayer Network and do other prayer things and go on prayer assignments to Guatemala, y'all, because there's a lot of stuff I care about, and the only way I see to influence it right now is to pray, and that's not nothing. It's a whole lot more than nothing, okay? But one of the other problems, if you're not being burdened, Okay, so I'm going to stay here on prayer, though, for a minute before I shift off. Some of y'all need to understand that the, that the angst that you're feeling is a burden for intercession, okay? And that God is putting a, a thing on your heart to learn how to identify that burden and then to move that into intercession. And intercession is a Hebrew word, pagah, and it means basically everything. Uh, encourage you to read Dutch Sheets's book um, called Intercessory Prayer. It's an old book, but it's great about this. But intercession means to work together with for the good of another. Okay, so my son asks me um, to help him to intercede for him on his math homework. Okay, and so the way that I help my son, I intercede for my son, is I sit down with him, and he shows me his problems, and I ask him questions, and we read the text, and I explain difficult words, right? I ask him questions and walk him through concepts. That's intercession. What is not intercession is me taking my son's math homework and doing it for him, okay? That's not intercession. Sometimes God does that. That is sovereign action, or it is codependent enabling, But um, intercession is working together for the good of. And some of y'all need to understand that the burden that you have is a burden for intercession. Okay? And that you can ask the Father for understanding, and He will give you more, and He will give you authority. And it is absolutely one of the most thrilling experiences in my life to have concern about something, to ask Jesus for understanding, and then he says something, and we get a couple of prayer people together, and then we actually go and do something. And I can, exp- I have so many testimonies and stories that are not fit for public consumption on all that. I love it. It's real. Okay, so the other component to this, though, on the unhealthy side, is if you're, if you're so caught up and... Um, I don't want it to sound negative, but you know it's a negative experience that many of us are having with our frustration at, at the world right now from all that we're learning. And if that's you and you're not feeling led into a burden of intercession and you're not being moved to take action um, to get involved in local politics or run for a school board or to begin to expand your area of influence, it may be that you need to disconnect your mind from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and reconnect your mind and your heart to the tree of life. What does that mean? Take write all your fears and anxieties and frustrations and angers down on a piece of paper. 
write them all down, go into your bedroom or your prayer closet or a walk on the park or go up to the Smoky Mountains and cry out to God. Tell him how much you hate this, this, and this. Tell him how much you can't stand. Tell him how much you're afraid of X, Y, and Z and your children and the thing, the mass in your body or the frustration. Go and cry out to Jesus. Go and do it. You don't have to get cleaned up to use the soap, right? You don't have to get washed to go encounter Jesus, but you do need to take your anxiety and all of your knowledge and take it to the tree of life and say, whatever's in your heart. Read the Psalms. Read some lament Psalms. Listen to David cry out to God. How long, O Lord, must my enemies triumph over me? How long? I'm besieged on every side, right? David knew how to cry out to God because he wasn't just connected to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was connected to life, Okay, And he had so much knowledge about right and wrong, good and evil, and what to do. Why? Because he was connected to life. And we were made to know right and wrong, good and evil. But we were never made to know right and wrong, good and evil, without reference to God. And if you think you know what is right, and it's not clearly in the Word, and it's not connected to the Father's heart, you're probably, I just submit that to you for restructuring. Reconnect your heart to God, right? And, and this is what I'm talking about here, maybe new to some of y'all. This is what the Christian life is for me. Learning how to connect our hearts to God. We come in seasons and times when we're burdened and we've got great concern and no influence. Take that all to Jesus. Cry out to him. Let him expand your influence or let him decrease your anxiety surrounding, you know what? This is not yours. Here's a very good definition of codependency. Ready? You don't want to write this one down. This will set you free. Codependency is when you work harder on someone else's problem than they do. Okay? Don't be in a codependent relationship with God. Okay? If you have a problem in the earth... Don't try to work harder on it than God is. Go and ask him, what are you doing about this, God? And is there anything I can do? And learn how to hear a no and let some of it go. I'm not advocating for withdrawing from the public square of not doing difficult things, of not confronting darkness, not confronting lies and deception and culture. I'm not advocating for that. I'm not advocating retreat. But y'all, we can't go into battle armed with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have to go into battle connected to life. And you will get your butt kicked and you will be defeated and you will have the presence of God stripped from your nation if you use his Ark of the Covenant like a talisman, right? You have to be connected to the word, the heart, and the voice of Jesus. And we're not trying to get American Christians in control of government. We're trying to expand the kingdom of God so that his justice will reign supreme so people can actually live free and not be seduced into slavery by neo-Marxist ideologies that will kill all of them. So, 
Concern and influence. You know, great concern, no influence. Connect your heart to the Father, learn to pray. Or come out of your codependent relationship with yourself and others and let go of some of this stuff and let Jesus show you what he says. Stay connected to him. And when you do that, and it's only in this order, I believe. Um, I may listen to this later and say, oh, that was wrong. But it seems to me that only in this order, taking our concern to God where we feel helpless, asking him that we really begin to grow our sphere of influence because we have his heart, right? We have to have the heart of the Father. David has a piece of furniture in heaven named after him. The Messiah comes and sits on the throne of David because he was after God's heart. He both chased after it and he was molded after it, right? When we have the heart of God, the scriptures say in, I think it's Psalms or Proverbs, that, you know, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Well, also in other passages, the heart is deceitfully evil and wicked. Who could know it? So which is it? We get the desires of our hearts or it's evil? Well, the whole idea of delighting yourself in the Lord, thank you, um, Melody Psalms. Um, when you delight yourself in the Lord, you meditate on what he says. You're not looking at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and seeing that it's a delight to the eyes. You're delighting yourself in the tree of life. And when your heart gets renewed and restored as you delight in the beauty of his majesty, guess what happens? Your heart starts to look like him. And when your heart starts to look like him, guess what he gets to do? He gives you more influence. He gives you the desire of your very heart because your heart has delighted itself in him and now it looks like him. Not because you ate desiring fruit, but because you've stayed connected to the tree of life. So, I feel like I wandered a little bit there, but I was feeling the anointing. And so I want to just encourage you all. Um, I'm going to tell you one more story. Uh, one more story, and then I'll pray and answer questions. Um... My oldest daughter, Sophia, when she was, um, I don't know, I think it was like five or six weeks ago, or five or six years ago, her, um, her papa, um, Billy Lucas, Baptist preacher, witnessed to Elvis on a train from San Antonio to Chicago, led worship with Billy Graham, Billy Lucas. Um, he, uh, he passed away. Uh, and he was about a year in hospice. And I remember one night we were over at their house, and she was six or seven years old, five or five or six years old at that point. And she, but she knew Papa. And with a year of being a, wasting away his body, wasting away in hospice in his home, um, he had a, a, a pretty good sized stroke. And then it was only a matter of two days or so. But we went over there to say our last goodbyes, and I took my, my five-year-old girl in there, Sophia, and I took her in, and he just looked really different, you know, um, just looked really different. And this was concerning to her, and she kind of held on to me, and she looked at him and couldn't really make sense of it and came back out. And, you know, growing up, I was terrified of death. 
divorce, tornadoes, and death. Um, so I'm facing death with my little five-year-old here now. And as we come out, we go back and we sit back down on the couch and she kind of is snuggling me and she looks at me and she says, Daddy, Daddy, is, is that going to happen to, is that going to happen to me? I said, oh yeah, baby girl, it happens to everyone. It even happened to Jesus. And she went, oh, okay. And then she went down and started playing toys with her friends, her brother and sister. You know, so we go home and I'm in my office and it's late at night. And um, that night I hear this cry from the top of the stairs and it's like 9 30, 10 o'clock. And it's not my brother hit me with a shoe kind of cry that we hear all the time. It was like angst opening up in the heart of a child. And I come around the corner and I look up our stairway up to the top level where the kids' rooms are and she's standing ashen white, trembling. And I run up the stairs and I grab her and I'm like, Sophia, what's going on? And she looked at me with these just terrified, blood-drained-out-of-her-body look. She looked at me and she said, Daddy, what happens if you die first and us kids are all alone? And I'm thinking, oh man, here I am face-to-face with all of my terror of death And I'm thinking, okay, what do I say to my little daughter? I can't tell her what I'm thinking. I'm like, damn straight, that's what's going to happen. I ain't burying you, you know. I'm dying first. I can't say that, you know. That's the wrong, I knew enough not to say that, you know. But I'm not going to lie to her. I can't look at her and say, oh, baby girl, you're never going to die. Like, that's, that's a lie. Or don't think about it. That's, that's tomorrow's problem. That's 18-year-old Sophia's problem, okay? Let's just kick that emotional trauma down the road to deal with it later. Like, I didn't want to do either of those. And so I grabbed her and I picked her up. I took her and sat her down on my bed. And I just, I was sitting there going, Jesus, help. Like, I don't know what to do, you know? And I just had this, I heard this phrase, cry out to me. And I looked at her and I said, Sophia, there are times in our lives when we don't know what to do. And the only thing that we have to do is to cry out to Jesus. Would you do this with me right now? Would you cry out to Jesus? And we're going to ask him what he says is true about death and Papa. Okay? So, I'm going to hold you, I said. She's five or six. I said, I'm going to hold you. We're going to cry out to Jesus together, and you're going to listen. I said, you may hear something. You may feel something. You may have some little thought that just comes into your, into your mind. But we're going to cry out to Jesus, and you're going to listen, and then you're going to tell me what he says. And she was like, Okay. I was like, you don't need to pray. I'm going to pray. So I grabbed her, I held her, and I just said, Jesus. I cried out to Jesus with my little daughter, right? And then when I feel the presence of the Lord, I feel like electricity in my body a lot. And I just had this warmth and this experience after a minute or so of feeling the presence of God. And I could, you know, I was holding my little girl. And after about two, three minutes, I looked at her and her color had come back. And I said, I said, Sophia, oh, did you hear anything? 
And she went, no. I was like, well, you know, did you, did you see anything? She was like, no. It's like, did you feel anything? She was like, no. It's like, well, did you just have any kind of thought? And she said, yeah. And I said, what? And she said, Jesus told me that he would always be with me and he would always protect me. And I looked at her, and she's five. And I looked at her, and she's got these like watery eyes and all the colors returned. And I looked at her, I said, Sophia, you heard that? And she said, yeah. And I said, that was Jesus. He told you what was true about death. And she looked at me and she said, Daddy, how did he get so strong? And I was like, oh, that's a great question. Let's ask him when we meet him. You know, and the next night, her papa died. The next week, I take her to the funeral home in San Antonio, Texas, and she gets all dressed up, this little five-year-old, and she goes in. It's an open casket, and she wants me to pick her up, pick her up. She cries. She touches his body, cries, and then she wants down. She goes back outside, laughs, dances, plays, comes back in, asks to be picked up, cries, says goodbye to Papa, goes back out, right? I watched this little girl where I was stuck for 25 years, terrified of death. She confronted it at five, heard from Jesus what was true, and now her life is having a very different experience than mine, being terrified of death. Why? Because she cried out to Jesus and she heard something, and it changed her life, you know? And this is the way that we can experience death, y'all. We can cry out to Jesus, and he can tell us what's true about it. It didn't stop Papa from dying. It didn't stop her from crying. It didn't stop her from hurting. But it stopped her from getting stuck in terror and believing lies of the enemy that death is the end, because it's not. Okay? And y'all need to come out from the lie that this is the end of America. Okay? Come out from that lie. This is not over. This is not the word of the Lord. This is not what God is saying. And if you will cry out to Jesus in the place that your heart is desperate, he will show you. He will show you. Okay? And then what do you get to become now? You're the change agents, right? You're the sons and the daughters that know his voice. You're the ones that have the answers to the anxious, scared, hurting culture. You're the ones that carry the voice of the Father out to the heart of those that are broken and needy. You're the one that has no longer stayed connected to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but you've reconnected to the tree of life, and you are desperately dependent upon his word for everything. Would you guys pray with me? King Jesus, we thank you, Father, that you are alive and that you're not a concept and our God is not dead. He's surely alive. He's living like a lion. He's living like a lion, roaring on the inside. My youngest is singing that song right now. We thank you, Jesus. That's true. 
Um, Father, and I ask in Jesus' name that you would deposit your peace on everyone that's listening to this right now. Father, that you could show them how to confront the places in their own hearts and how to confront the places in our own souls, in our minds, God, where we are so wrapped up in knowledge of good and evil without reference to your voice, your word, your character, your scriptures. Father, I pray, God, that you would expose those places of idolatry, and that you would remove them, Father, by deconstructing them and realigning them with life, with truth, with everlasting knowledge that comes from you. Father, we do agree, Jesus, that you are not done with America, that you are not done with the West. Father, and that our American exceptionalism is not based upon our capitalist ideologies or our whiteness. It is based on the fact that your people in this nation cry out to you. And that makes our nation exceptional because we will go into the places that no one else will go because we know the one who goes there first, Jesus. Father, so teach us, God. And we do see in the not-so-distant future an America that is very different than the divided, painful one that we're in now. And that isn't going to happen, Jesus, just because we get a new president or a new Congress, though that would be very nice. It's going to happen, Jesus, because you come in power to to a people that are crying out in desperation, and everything changes. Father, so we ask, God, that you would stir up the desperation in the body of Christ, that you would stir up the body of Jesus, God, to be desperate. Father, at the end of our knowledge, at the end of our ability, at the end of our philosophy, at the end of all of our efforts, there still remains an unguarded, wide-open, empty tomb, and the tree of life has come out and is available to reconnect with for anyone that calls on his name. So, Father, we ask Jesus, and we call on your name again tonight, Jesus. Reconnect us with your word, your truth, your life. Reconnect us with the things that you have said about our families. Reconnect us, God, with the things you've said about our own lives, our jobs, our purposes. Reconnect us to life tonight, Jesus. We ask you, God, for this. Believe you according to your word. We just say we love you, Daddy. We bless you. Living God, Holy One of Israel. We pray these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all. If you would like to get connected with the Zoom, you can text the number 770-746-8388. Um, and text the word study to that number. But I would love to open it up here now for a few minutes of questions. Um, I will look on Facebook and YouTube. And also, y'all, if you have any questions inside of Zoom, sort of a hard left turn from prayers and crying out to Jesus to text me at this number. Sorry for that. But if you have a question, raise your hand uh, in Zoom, and I would love to answer any questions that you have. I will give you a moment. Questions? Yes, go ahead. Um, iPhone 3771171. Can you, uh, can you ask your question? I don't know what your name is. Your phone says iPhone. Okay. Hello? Um, 
I don't have that exact phone number. My phone number is a little bit, the well, number is different, but. Yeah, go ahead and go ahead and ask a question. I was wondering, um, is what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, that why it, uh, women, women get paid so much less than men? Is, well, I don't, um. I don't necessarily think that there's a direct causal link to the ancient Eden story with that, but I do think that it's worth exploring um, the enmity that that the serpent has uh, with woman um, and how that gets worked out inside a culture. Um, you know, and I—I I mean, I'm—I'm I'm resisting the the urge to talk about the wage income equality and the wage gap. Um, you know, I—I I, I do think in general that experience with the woman and the serpent in that particular moment has a lot to do with the way that women have historically been treated inside a culture, um, and that that the prejudices and the sexism that exists um, in the hearts of individuals has to do with agreeing with the enemy's lies about women. Hmm. So I, I do think that it can be traced back to that. Uh, and it's not just that, I'll say this, um, there's a prescriptive and a descriptive reading of Genesis. Okay, so the descriptive reading is that in Genesis 3, we get a description of what humanity does on a regular basis to reconnect ourselves with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we agree with the devil, and this describes the human condition, okay? Another way of reading it is a prescriptive reading that because one person did this, now we're all, regardless of our own choices and behavior, we're all prescribed to act and function in the same way. Okay, there's a big conversation inside of theology about this. Um, but the idea, I think it's probably a little bit of both, you know, that when we agree with the serpent's lies about what he says about women or what he says about men or what he says about humanity, we will fall again and again into these traps. And the key for me is both receiving the forgiveness, healing, cleansing of Jesus, and coming out from the regular agreements we have with the demonic lies that lead us into believing these sorts of things. And I think those have consequences in culture, like income inequality for equal work, although quite a lot has happened in the last 25, 30 years regarding that particular gender pay gap. Um, and it's some remarkable evidence in culture. Um, so thank you for that question. Thank you for your answer. You're welcome. Is there any other questions in Zoom? Um, oh, Nancy, question. You said earlier, Facebook, you said earlier that God created good and evil. Did God create evil, though? Ah, the chicken or the egg? Yes, um, that is a very real question. It's a big, long discussion. Um, one of the ideas is that evil isn't... Here's one idea. I'm not sure it's the right idea. But one idea is that evil isn't actually a thing, it's the absence of good. Just like dark isn't actually a thing, it's the absence of light. Light is a photon that is a you know, self-perpetuating, oscillating, electromagnetic waveform, right? It's actually a thing. Darkness is not a thing, it's the absence of that. 
Um, so the one idea is that evil, in the same way, isn't a created thing. It's the absence of the presence of the good God. That's one way that people look at it. Um, I don't believe that that fully explains the reality of evil in the world. I think there is a metaphysical evil. There is an ontological, <laughs> nice word. There is an ontological um, reality and metaphysical reality to evil. Um, and I do, the creation of evil um, comes into a, a discussion about God's design and then the uh, free will opportunities that it appears that the angelic realms had to rebel. So if good and evil um, is something that God made, he made the capacity to have a choice to rebel. Um, and it does seem that the you know, Lucifer and his minions made that choice. Um, so, man, that particular question, I read it and began to answer it, but that deserves a much longer treatment. So, I do believe that God created evil, although he didn't make evil in the capacity that he makes people serial murder children, right? He didn't make abortion. Um, he made the capacity for people to make choices so that he could have people that loved and the perversion of all of those things resulted in evil. Um, so... And, you know, we'd have to have a long discussion about that question. Good one. Um, is there another? Mary, can you unmute and ask a question? Yes. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for sharing the story. Oh, sure. I like the story. Yeah. Um, this is an old question, you know. Um, you know, people always ask if, if God does not want us to eat the you know, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, why he put it there? What is your thought? Why he put that tree there? And he said, you, you can't eat it. Then why he put it there? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is part of, we talked about this, I think, in one of the earlier weeks. Um, I think it has fundamentally to do with what requires, what is, what is the minimum conditions or the necessary conditions for freedom? And that freedom requires that you have a viable choice between at least two things at any given moment. Um, and, you know, the whole idea of freedom and free will and, you know, that's a big discussion. I had a whole philosophy class on that, which I loved. But I believe that God put the tree in the garden and that it was recorded in such a way so that we knew that God wanted friends and partners and lovers, not robots, Right? And if we didn't have a choice to disconnect with him, then, you know, are we really free? And I think it, you know, it is that simple, but that's a very complicated idea. Um, but it has to do with the fact that he wanted friends and lovers and not slaves and servants. You know, is a slave free to do whatever they want? You know, not really. Is a son or a daughter free? You know, well, if there was no possibility for disconnection with God, would we really know that we loved him? 
You know, this is part of the conundrum of being human is that unless there is pain, we don't really understand the glory of joy. Um, but joy isn't defined by pain, but it references it, right? And the human experience doesn't negate um, the reality that there is great joy and hope in the world, but we kind of need reference to the other stuff. So it's all interconnected. Um, I'm definitely rambling now, trying to close out my thought. But does that answer your question? You want to ask another one or follow up? Uh, yeah, I'm fine. I thought it's part of it. It's for freedom. Another thing is that, you know, if we have like bad experience, so we may, you know, we'll go back to the, the best one, right? If, um, like, for example, if I really like eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then I find out, oh, this is so bad experience because uh, Adam and Eve, they were out of the Eden garden, right? So, um, so yeah, so we may like repent and we want to go back to God again. Yeah, if we don't have this bad experience, we don't know how good if we have, like, we, we can have the connection with God. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, well, I think that that's right. And this makes me think of one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis about pain. He says this, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So there is a reality uh, to hurting that makes you cry out to Jesus and you get breakthroughs like my five-year-old got, you know, because you're hurting. And Jesus staring at the tomb of Lazarus, the shortest verse in the Bible, weeping, not because he can't believe it happens, but I think he's looking around at, the, at how much death hurts his beloved people, right? And he says, nope, not now. And soon we're going to deal with this once and for all. You know, pain is an important identifier. I mean, if you don't have pain, you're like, there's actually a really serious condition that you don't feel pain. And it's deadly because you don't know when you've gone past the thresholds of what your body or your, what your body can take. You know, um, if we don't have pain, if we don't have pain, darkness. If we don't have some of that stuff, we never get woken up to um, how far we've gone past where we need to be. So, <laughs> amen, the megaphone is on 11 right now, Faith. You're right. Yes, but this one goes to 11. Why can't you just set it at 8 and then turn it up to 10? Uh, but this one goes to 11. Um, more movie quotes. All right, any other questions? It's approaching the 10 o'clock hour on the East Coast, and we've been talking for hours. All right, well, we'll call it a night then. Thank you all so much for joining. Um, Next week, I will be continuing on. We'll be talking then about the consequences of this disconnection um, and what God then does. Uh, as he sets and guards the tree of life and what the consequences of all that are. And 
This is a foundation that we begin to lay to understand the law, right? The law of Moses, the law at Sinai, the law that begins to enter into the world because of the covenant disconnection of Adam and Eve. What does God do to begin to redeem humanity? to draw them back into connection. And hopefully this is the foundation of beginning to really understand what the Old Testament law is all about. What is it for? How does does Jesus um, hospice us back to Christ? Paul uses a word, um, a pedagogue leads us. The law was our pedagogue until Jesus. So this will be foundational stuff that we begin to talk about next week. So Again, if you want to get connected to the study, text the word STUDY to 770-746-8388. And next week, I will send you on Monday afternoon the Zoom link to join up with me. So thank you all so much. So appreciate that you guys would continue to hang out and participate with me in all of this. So God bless you all, and we will see you again next time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Good night. God bless you.